Well, hello, Texans. Good evening. It's a different kind of show tonight, not a player's show. I know you heard the introduction, the silly introduction we have, because we like to get silly sometimes with the players and have some fun with them on a Tuesday night. Well, that is not the case tonight. No player availability today. We'll catch up with players later in the week, we hope. But with everything going on around the league, and by everything, of course, I mean the collapse of DeMar Hamlin last night during Monday Night Football in critical condition at a Cincinnati hospital. We are changing the show a bit. Nick Casario, we caught up with him today, and usually we would run this on Wednesday, but it's timely as of this morning. We talked to Nick about the situation around the league with DeMar Hamlin, so we're going to hear a conversation with Nick first, but then we're going to get into some other things tonight. Dr. Kevin Linsman from Houston Methodist, a cardiologist who works with the Texans and other Houston sports teams, and you want to hear what he has to say. A conversation with him about Camosio Cordis, which was trending on Twitter last night. Look, he did not examine DeMar Hamlin, of course, but we're going to talk about the situation he could be in without speculating directly on him, but situations like this, because there are others in the world of sports that have occurred, so he'll have some unique perspective there. And then we're going to check in with Matt Taylor, the voice of the Indianapolis Colts, see how things are going in Indy with them reacting to everything. We'll have more of an extended visit with him later on in the week. And John Harris will be along, along with D.P. Sidhu, Drew Doherty. We'll discuss the entire situation around the NFL as it pertains to DeMar Hamlin and the Buffalo Bills. Let's start with this. Nick Casario, his reaction. Really puts, I'd say, everything in perspective. Uh, things a lot more important than football when something like that takes place. I mean, certainly our condolences, thoughts, and prayers are with the Bills organization, the players, the staff, the Hamlin family, University of Pittsburgh. A lot of players are going to be affected throughout the course of the league uh, on other teams, the Buffalo team, Cincinnati team, our team, uh, teammates um, that along the way uh, cross paths with, with DeMar. So um, to, to it's hard to put into words something like this. It's sort of mind-numbing. It's a little bit chilling. Um, but you're just hoping for the best, and the only thing that we can all do is pray and support, and then hopefully he's in great hands and he receives the medical support that he needs and that ultimately he he can make the recovery that he needs to just continue to lead a good life. Mm-hmm. And obviously that becomes more important. And, Nick, last night as we were watching the game, I was trying to think of, you know, something that's happened, you know, across the league or just in, a, in one game that – really kind of shook us all the foundation. And the only thing I really could come up with was, you know, 9-11. And you were with the Patriots at that point. Um, and you guys had already had a tragedy losing a coach prior to that. And then you had 9-11, which actually the planes um, left from Boston. What was – is there any sort of analogous situation to that? I mean, obviously that's a national tragedy. This obviously is in a different way. But just the, the having to deal with that sort of situation as a team. Yeah, I think any experience like that is fairly traumatic. And really what you do, you take it away from football. You spe- mm-hmm. you don't spend the time on football. You spend time on life. You spend time on people. Yeah. And you spend time on things that, quite frankly, matter a little bit more than the task at hand. The league did as, as well as they could under the circumstances Monday evening. Yeah. Uh, the, the clubs looked like they handled it the best they could. I don't think any of us have seen, uh, been around something like this in, in sport. I certainly have in you know, my 20 some years in the league. The only thing that potentially could come close to something like this is going back to what happened with Loyola Marymount and Hank Gathers, yeah. you yeah. know, when a situation yeah. like that. So 
you, you can't even imagine anything like that taking place and just the, the trauma that it causes. And you saw the pain, the anguish on the faces of a lot of players. And it, it's, it's emotions are involved because you're talking about someone's life. And in the end, this game, this sport, it's about people and people matter most more than anything else. Nick, as we're recording this, I mean, everything's happening in real time. Hamlin is in critical condition, yet everybody in the league is observing, praying, hoping for the very best, and the business of the sport goes on in a way. So what can you tell us about that part of it? Because people have games to get ready for, yet you have this sort of hanging over your head. Sure, I think you have to be sensitive to everything that's involved. Let's say each team is probably going to handle it a little bit differently, whatever they feel is in their best interest. Um, at some point, if we get further direction from the league, then we'll adjust accordingly. Um, one of the things that we've done or are going to do is certain players are normally in on Tuesday, and we're going to give the players the day off so they can focus on handling this situation however they feel most appropriate, mm -hmm. provide resources, not only players, coaches, staff, you're, ne you're never really sure how they're going to be materially affected or impacted. So all we can do is provide resources, provide support, and provide an outlet for people so that they have an opportunity to potentially grieve or handle it however they see fit. Nick, one of the things that stood out to me um, in watching you last night was how quickly the medical response happened. Um, and I remember having been a head coach a long time ago at, at high school level and being a young guy. I mean, there were so many things that were always flying around. I remember my athletic director always saying, make sure the ambulance take care of, make sure the ambulance is taken care of. And I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, got it. And it was like, I remembered those conversations vividly as I watched that last night. But the medical response, the teams, you know, our medical response um, on things that have happened over the years, how important is did that become last night that they were able to react as quickly as they did and be there with the right resources on the field? Sure, it was was critical. I think we're blessed and fortunate to have the best, the smartest, uh, the most equipped medical professionals, doctors um, throughout the course of the United States. I think in the case last night with the game being in Cincinnati, um, with the hospital being as close as it was yeah. to the facility, um, that could potentially have made a difference. We'll, we'll know more here as we find out, but we're blessed in the city of Houston to have some of the best medical care as well. But the health and safety and the well-being of the players is paramount, yeah. and it's first and foremost more important than anything else. So whatever you can do as a team and a club to provide those resources, that's what you have to do on a day-to-day -day basis, not knowing when something like this can potentially happen. But I think we're all very fortunate for the medical professionals um, throughout the course, throughout the nation, throughout the country, specifically in Cincinnati last night. And we're very fortunate to have the care that we have here in Houston, some of the best really in the world. Nick, during a game, obviously there, there are a ton of medical personnel around. But even in the building here during the week, we have paramedics, doctors, the athletic trainers. They know a lot to begin with. And I think there's a paramedic office near the loading dock. What can you share with us about that, about the kind of focus there is on medical attention if needed or whatever the case may be? It's mass massive, and it goes back to the health and safety of, of the players and doing whatever we can to provide them necessary treatment. Anytime you have an injury, there's medical professionals that are the experts in their field, so we rely on them for their expertise, for their information, for their care. Um, and, I, again, you can't really prepare for a situation like this, but what you want to make sure that you have are the resources available for the players 
to comfort the players. Anytime you're going through a pretty traumatic experience, their well-being is really the most important thing. So having access to those people, to those resources, sort of right around the corner, it makes a big difference. And hopefully it puts people at ease understanding that they have that available to them. Nick, one of the aspects of this that I'm – I mean, when you said Hank Gathers, I just – I mean, mm. I got a lump in my throat thinking about it because he was – he was my favorite college basketball player growing up. I used to watch those teams. So thinking about that aspect, I mean, I don't play the game anymore. I'm around and around these guys, but these guys play the game. How, I don't know the right way of asking this, but what's the most important thing as far as players and whether it's reassuring them or just trying to get them back on the field to play a violent sport that we all talk about, you know, that, you know, we mentioned it, we're talking about defense, you've got to be football violent, but it is a violent sport. And there they saw it last night really come to fruition. How difficult a task is that? And what are the resources kind of available for the players to kind of talk through a situation like that, Nick? Yeah, I mean, what you have to, you can't put yourself in their shoes, because we're not what they do, they're elite players, they're elite athletes, and to be able to go out there and perform at elite level, um, there's still a human aspect that's involved. So how they feel, what's their mindset, what can we do to help them? Um, I mean, I give a tremendous amount. I was happened to be watching some of the coverage last night, and I thought the way that Ryan Clark sort of articulated yeah. what was happening from a player's perspective and how eloquent it was under trying circumstances, I thought was absolutely incredible. And it kind of puts in perspective from a player's view, these are the things that – they're thinking that they have to go through. And I think as a team, as a staff, you have to be cognizant of some of those things that a player might be going through. And you just have to provide a sounding board. You have to have a certain degree of empathy. And you just have to be able to provide them sort of a sounding board where they can go. And if they, don't, if they feel a certain way, you have to understand that and do the best you can to modify and adjust accordingly. So it's there's no playbook for something like this. You just have to listen. You have to open your mind. You got to open your heart and you have to be willing to, I would say, understand and embrace the perspective of the player and what they may be dealing with and how that affects them potentially moving forward as it pertains to, to going on the field. As we're all praying for Hamlin's recovery, Nick in the league, there's a domino effect that can happen schedule wise and all of that. And everybody's thinking about it. it's Tuesday and here's week 18 coming up. And I know the Texans aren't directly involved, but you never know what happens with scheduling and things like that. How does that stuff go down? The league office is obviously going to decide these things, but they have to get input from teams and teams have to get input from players. Correct? Yeah. The, the league, I would say in these particular situations, they're very thoughtful, I would say, about how they approach it. So they have to take all the variables into the equation, and ultimately they'll do what they feel is in the best interest of everybody involved. So from a club perspective, that's all we can do is sort of lean on the league um, for their, I would say, guidance. Um, And ultimately, whatever decision is made, you just have to be prepared to adjust and handle accordingly. So whatever it is. So they have a, a tough job. Uh, the league does a great job, I would say, of communicating and messaging about how things will proceed moving forward on a much, I would say, smaller, smaller scale. Mm-hmm. What we went through in Tennessee, there was some communication and dialogue back and forth, and then ultimately the decision that was made. So I think first and foremost, you're thinking about the individual and the people and the player, and I would say in this case the Buffalo Bills, Anything beyond that, I think over the course of the 
uh, of the day um, and time, we'll get a little more guidance and direction. And whatever the league decides, then you know we'll adjust and handle accordingly. Nick, obviously, this is there's no way to transition to something smoothly, and so I will try and bridge them if I can. But I was thinking about this the other day, amongst you know general managers in the league. You guys obviously are the only people that know that job in particular. How much communication do you have kind of throughout the league just talking about whether it's matters like this or whether it's a scheduling thing or whether it's how often do you communicate with general managers or people of that ilk throughout the league? It's, it's a good question. It probably varies depending on the time of the year. I'd say when you have during the off season and you have opportunities to get together with other people throughout the league, whether it's the combine, whether it's the all-star games, you may have some dialogue and discussion with some people that you have some familiarity with about, I would say, scheduling, practicing, practice ideas, drills, things of that nature. I'd say in season, there probably isn't as much dialogue, um, but maybe you reach out to somebody about that they've practiced a certain way or yeah. you have crossover with, or, hey, what about this? What have you done in this particular situation? So it's probably case by case. So I would say it's probably done more in the off season where you have a little bit more crossover. But as far as in season goes, each team operates a certain way, how they put together the schedule, how they practice, how they meet, um, what to do, I would say, in any emergency situation or what resources do they have available. And then if there's something there that makes sense that you can incorporate into your program, then you certainly consider. I think everybody is kind of looking for best practices. Yep. What can we do to improve? What can we do to make strides in certain areas? Um, so. To your question, John, it, it does happen. Yeah. It probably happens at different points of the year on a larger scale. Well, players due to get back in on Wednesday, and you've got a game to get ready for after that with the Indianapolis Colts. It's the final game of the season, Nick. What kinds of things are you looking for after what happened against Jacksonville as we allow ourselves to talk about the game a little bit here and see how it goes? Yeah, it's been a while since we've played the Colts, so going back to week one. So they've changed from where they started the season to where they are now. Um, I'd say from a big-picture perspective, there's still some core things that uh, I would say have remained the same. Um, so we've changed as well. So you kind of have to look at what happened earlier in the year, kind of have an understanding, and then really look at the last however many weeks of games that the opponent has played and try to get an idea of where they are as a team. So. Um, like I said, they've undergone some change on a larger scale from you know, Coach Reich to going to Coach Saturday. Um, they've had a, a number of changes that they've made personnel-wise in a mm -hmm. player front. So you still have to go through and kind of go through your process and prepare uh, for the opponent and prepare for what you're going to see both uh, personnel-wise and then schematically as well. So um, I'd say as a team, they still have a lot of really good players um, who have played really good football, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Um, mm -hmm. So they're in you know, top, I don't know, 10 in most categories defensively. So they've, they've played well on defense. Um, they've had a lot of injuries that have affected the, probably what's going on offensively. Um, they've kind of had three different quarterbacks that have played. So it looks like you know Sam's going to play this weekend. Um, Nick played last week, and Matt has played throughout the course of the year. So study the individual players, look at what they're doing from a schematic standpoint and how they're incorporating, I would say, maybe some of the newer players. But there definitely have been some constants and some consistent players. We talked about defensively. I mean, offensively, I mean, Pittman's been a pretty constant, uh, pretty big constant from the beginning. So he's probably been one of their best players. And for the most part, the offensive line has remained intact. They've had some changes at left tackle. Um, losing Jonathan, you know, has hurt them a little bit. 
um, and the quarterback situation. They've kind of had multiple guys in there. So kind of look at their team, look at where they are, look at how they're playing. Um, the week one is a little bit of a reference point, but we're 17, however many weeks removed. So it's a little bit of a different team. Nick, we've seen this a few times this year, in particular in the division with, with Tennessee, kind of both times where Ryan Tannehill was not practicing. And, well, are we going to see Malik? Coach Saturday came straight out the other day and said, no, Sam Ellinger is going to be the quarterback. I guess this question turns into trust. Do you, do you trust that as you prepare for them? Like, okay, how much do you – because Sam and Nick are two different quarterbacks because Sam can be mobile. But how do you kind of address that with the fact that, okay, he said Sam's going to start. Do we trust it? Do we prepare for Nick just in case? How do you kind of go about that situation when you're not 100% sure, but he said it, so maybe it's going to happen, probably going to happen? Yeah, you have to prepare for everybody. So everybody that's on the team, that's on the active roster, you have to prepare for. There might be some players on the practice squad who have been elevated. So you have to kind of look at where they are, maybe from an injury standpoint, who's available. So just offensively, there's certain things that Sam does maybe better than Nick does. So what they do with Sam in those particular situations, how you want to defend those plays, how you want to handle those plays you certainly have to be ready for those so um and the running backs i mean really it's sort of turned over to some degree they traded naheem um hines jonathan's on ir so then they have let's say three backs that weren't even either on the team or hadn't played that much yeah. so i think understanding the personnel understanding that player's strengths understanding their weaknesses understanding how they've used the player within the scheme of what they're doing offensively change the play caller so all those things you have to factor in um, do you trust the information? All you can do is prepare for the team and prepare for the players. And just have an understanding of when that player's in the game, some of the things that he does well, and they might try to cater some things that accentuate what that player does well. How important is it you have one opportunity here to bounce back from the performance against Jacksonville for all the individuals involved and collectively as well? How important is that? Yeah, I think the big thing is just want to try to go out there and play good football, try to play good, consistent football, try to do things that um, are required to win uh, this particular week. So once we identify, you know, what we have to do on each side of the ball, offensively, defensively, in the kicking game, then go out there and try to execute those things at a good level. So um, I think everybody's disappointed about what happened against Jacksonville. We didn't play very well, um, but now we have to turn the page like we do every week and get ready for the next opponent and the next challenge in front of us which are the Colts and some of the, the problems that they present. So I think I'm contractually obligated to ask you about rookies, but I'm going to ask you about future rookies, and that being Shrine Bowl, Senior Bowl, those kind of things. I'd imagine, Nick, you, you've already talked about being prepared for that, but we're getting ever so close to those opportunities where you get a chance to see these players up close. How much more preparation goes in from, from your angle to kind of get up to speed of who you're going to see at those traditional All-Star games? Yeah, once the season is over, you kind of shift to sort of team-building mode. Um, we've gone through kind of an initial round of meetings here in December, um, identifying some of the needs and some of the different traits and characteristics that we need to maybe dig a little deeper on and study a little bit more, not necessarily on the field, but maybe some of the things from a football character background standpoint. Um, the All-Star Games are going to start to kick into gear here, actually, even next week. Some yeah. of the, I would say, uh, other All-Star Games yeah. that are a part of it, uh, PA, CGS, I mean, there's a number of things. And then at the end of the month in January, you have the East-West, and that'll transition into the Senior Bowl. So essentially, you just kind of shift gears here a little bit and start the team-building aspect of the offseason. So, um, you know, we'll devote a lot of time and resources to that endeavor. Um, the underclassmen will factor in here as well. I think there's been about 55, 60 players that have officially come out and declared, make themselves eligible for the draft. 
they have up until, I want to say the 16th or 17th, they officially declare. So once the bowl games are finished up here, you may see a few more declarations. So a few more players going to the pool. There's some players that are either going to go back or have said they're going to, they're in the transfer portal. So you may have thought that player was going to come out. You may have done some work during the fall and now they're going to go back to school. No problem. All right, put them to bed here for a little bit and let's focus on the group here that are going to make themselves available for the draft here in April. All right, the unofficial official AFC Championship game is AFC South Championship game. i got to be clear on that. It's Saturday night, Jacksonville hosting Tennessee. What do you think of the matchup? Yeah, I mean, it's probably the two best teams in the division, you know, playing for the for the division championship. So um, kind of look at the arc of those two teams. Um, it's kind of been a tale of two seasons for both mm-hmm. teams. So Tennessee started well, kind of hit a rough patch here, but they still have an opportunity. And then Jacksonville kind of started slowly. And now they've won, I don't know, it's four or five games in a row. And they put themselves in a position to play for a championship. So really, that's real, all you're trying to do as a team and as an organization, to put yourself in a position to give yourself an opportunity to extend the season. So I think it'll be a, two, a good matchup, two, uh, two good teams, two well-coached teams. And the team that plays the best, the teams that makes the least amount of mistakes, the teams that executes best situationally, um, that's the team that's probably going to end up with the victory um, on Saturday. So it should be an interesting game to watch. Um, we know the teams well, um, but it's the two best teams in the division that are playing for a championship for the right to advance and play um, meaningful football here in January. Nick, thanks a lot for joining us. Good luck this week. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, there's Nick Casario. We caught up with him earlier in the day. So if anything broke since then, obviously Nick commenting on the situation that was there Earlier in the day with DeMar Hamlin in critical condition in a Cincinnati hospital, safety for the Buffalo Bills. Now, we'll check in with Dr. Kevin Linsman next, cardiologist with Houston Methodist. What does he have to say about Commotio Cordis, which is, look, it's not officially what DeMar Hamlin has, but it was trending on Twitter. We thought he'd get his thoughts on that condition, on what kinds of things happen in these situations. Also, Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, what's going on in Indy, their perspective on what is happening around the league with the Hamlin situation and beyond. Drew and DP will be along. Johnny again. We'll do it all here. It's Texans Radio. All right, it's not the Texans players show tonight because of the situation with DeMar Hamlin and the Buffalo Bills, and we will continue our conversation here talking about that and how it pertains to so many things around the NFL. Right now, special visit, Houston Methodist Minutes, special edition here with Dr. Kevin Linsman, who's a cardiologist with Houston Methodist, and I caught up with him moments ago asking him about this. He works with the Texans and various other Houston sports teams. He knows everything there is about cardiology of the world of sports and Camosio Cordis is a situation that was trending on Twitter last night a lot of people speculated that that's what DeMar Hamlin experienced well let's talk to Dr. Kevin Linsman about Camosio Cordis about what it's all about because various other athletes have suffered from this that's correct Mark so Camosio Cordis is it's actually a rare phenomenon um, and the reason it's rare luckily uh we don't see more tra- tragedies like happened last night uh, because a lot of, of, of athletes play contact sports. But in order for commotional cortis to take place, and what that means is it's initiated by a blunt force trauma to the chest, usually by a small object. So we see it a lot in baseball uh, when a batter hits the ball and perhaps hitches the, hits the pitcher in the chest. It has to hit the chest in a certain way and also, more importantly, in a certain part of the cardiac cycle. The heart's a muscle, so it's activated electrically 
And so as that electrical impulse travels down the heart, it's called a, a cardiac cycle. Um, it has to hit the heart at the right place and at the right time. So you could understand why, I mean, oftentimes we, we see in football, we see it in baseball, we see it in soccer, we see it in uh, the uh, sparring sports such as boxing and jujitsu where uh, a fist or a ball or something will hit the chest wall. Dr. Kevin Lindsman with us from Houston Methodist. Okay, tell me more about what happens upon impact. Yes, so when the heart is basically stopped, and, and, and when you when you this happened last night, the most likely rhythm he was in is a rhythm we call ventricular fibrillation, where the heart just goes into chaos. And it's sort of like, even though this is probably not a very accurate description, but it makes my point, is it's almost like the heart is seizing. And when the heart seizes, like the brain would seize, uh, the heart can't function well as a pump. And so blood flow to the brain ceases, blood flow to the vital organ ceases, and the, the athlete would collapse and be unconscious. Now, the key is getting the heart restarted because um, if we can get the heart restarted as a pump, then the likelihood of, of uh, a bad outcome is much lower. So, uh, and, th- and that kind of leads into something that I wanted to mention is that we teach our trainers here in Houston and in, in, in the NFL, NBA, uh, the uh, Major League Baseball, any of the any, in the collegiate leagues that if, a, if an athlete collapses, we really should be thinking airway, breathing, circulation. You should immediately assume the worst case scenario and run out and check those. From what I saw last night, that was done. Uh, he had CPR started very quickly because we always think of athletes as our most is the healthiest members of our society. We don't think of them dying suddenly of a cardiac event. So when that happens, sometimes it, it leads to, uh, you know, are they down? Are they, are they injured musculoskeletal injury? Or is it more of a, uh, they're just, I hate to say this being a little dramatic about a play. And so it's always tough to tell, but if they're not moving, then we need to really assume that they are seriously injured and, and do the ABCs. We call them ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. So if CPR has begun, quickly and they can be defibrillated, which means the heart would be shocked with an electrical impulse to get it back into rhythm, then survival can be very high. All right. So in critical condition, Dr. Kevin Lindsman with us, cardiologist of Houston Methodist. Doctor, for lack of a better way of putting it, how does one get out of critical condition? How does one improve from that state when they're in a situation like this? So critical condition would mean that he is basically in a situation where we are controlling functions, his breathing, his blood pressure. We're doing it with either medications or, and and from what I understand, he is on ventilatory assistance, which means he has a tube to help him breathe and help his, uh, because he is unconscious. Uh, Usually uh, when this happens, you're unconscious for a period of days even. Uh, And basically they induce what's called a medical coma. It's 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 an induced coma. What we found is when, if you look at the statistics on out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, they're very dismal. Only 1% survive. Now, that's mm-hmm. across the board. That's across uh, all people, not just athletes. Now, the, the, the good news with this is he was in a football arena. He had uh, EMS. He had trainers. He had medical professionals attend to him immediately, which is not what happens if you're walking around the park and you you collapse. It may be minutes, if not longer, before you're, 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 uh, you get any kind of medical assistance. So he had medical assistance very quickly. 
they resuscitated him, which means they got his heart rhythm, his blood pressure stable, and then they took him to the uh, the area hospital, the University of Cincinnati. At that point, we usually induce um, a medical coma, which means we make him unconscious. We don't want him awake during all these things that we're going to be doing. One of the things is called hypothermia protocol. We cool him down, and this is in order to protect his brain because once the heart stops, the organ that we worry most about after we get the heart restarted is, is how much of the brain has been injured by not getting blood flow. So one of the things we found over the years, and we do this for uh, anybody who would be in an out-of-hospital arrest, is we cool their temperature down, we paralyze them so they can't shiver, and we sedate them so they don't experience any discomfort. And we leave them that way for, for up to 48 to 72 hours. At that point, we would eventually start to rewarm him. And this is, again, what I assume they're doing there. I don't know that, but that's what I assume they'd be doing. And then at that point, we have a better chance that he will have a good neurologic recovery. Dr. Kevin Lindsman with us, cardiologist from Houston Methodist. Doctor, the road back. We talked a little bit about getting out of critical condition. What about after that? What about recovery? I know there are other examples out there. Yeah, so the, the one example I'll give you that, that's, a, that's a very good one is uh, Christian Erickson in 2021 is a soccer player. Mm-hmm. Uh, died while playing Finland. He's from Denmark. And he was resuscitated successfully, found to have a rare genetic problem called a channelopathy, which is sort of scary because it means that he just suddenly wasn't a a blow to the chest. It was just uh, that his heart went into this uh, fatal arrhythmia uh, spontaneously. Uh, So after he was resuscitated, um, he was this was discovered and that he had what's called an implantable cardio defibrillator, which is what's put in sort of like the size of a pacemaker. It's very small, and it, it goes into the chest, and the leads go into the heart. Leads are like uh, wires. And what it does is it's there. If he were ever to have another event like this, it would immediately shock him back because the chances of survival in a cardiac arrest have a lot to do with how quickly we get the heart shocked and back. And so this would mean that it would be done immediately, increasing his, his, his chances of survival. As I understand, he's playing soccer again, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's always been a little bit of a debate in the United States is that, and I've been involved with some of this, is that do you really want to allow somebody with a defibrillator to play uh, competitive sports? One, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to play contact sports if, he, if, if you have a defibrillator because of the chances the defibrillator would be damaged or your wires could be pulled back. But uh, we've, we've had it where basketball players were interested in, in playing and there's a big debate on whether that's a good idea or not. Uh, biggest worry is inappropriate shocks. In other words, will the device think that you're in this arrhythmia while you're really just exercising and it could shock the heart and do damage. So um, now with, with Mr. Hamlin, if, if, if this truly was commotio cordis and not some sort of genetic predisposition for him having an arrhythmia, then he could play again if he recovers. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is some sort of a random event. And you can't be screened for. It can't be prevented. It's just a random event. But to some, uh, but I'm sure they will want to do further workup. Yeah. Dr. Kevin Linsman with us from Houston Methodist works with the Texans and various other Houston sports teams. Doctor, just to summarize here, you mentioned it. Someone in Demar Hamlin's situation, you get excellent care. Obviously, it increases the chances of recovery of success. But you said could take days. You never know what the timetable is. It's really hard to put any kind of timetable on it. It could. It could. 
and having seen this uh, for other causes, if you look at uh, the most common causes is coronary artery disease and heart attacks. So we do get patients who get put in this critical condition, medically induced coma, and it can take days, it can take weeks. Uh, it, the, the, it's just hard, difficult to tell. What we do and we know is to stabilize them, control, uh, keep their blood pressure up, make sure their lungs are oxygenating. Also, make sure other organs aren't damaged by this event, such as the liver and the kidneys. If all, the thing that's going to be on Mr. Hamlin's side is he's very young and a very fit athlete. So that really does uh, favor uh, him uh, recovering from this. But we just won't know for a few days and, and how long the brain was without blood flow. Uh, even if the heart were still in that arrhythmia, as long as he's getting good CPR, uh, I've seen people uh, live even 30 or 40 minutes after, you know, CPR was begun. So mm. um, it's it just we just don't know until that's that's the most difficult time uh, for I'm sure uh, his teammates and his family is the wait. Uh, because I always tell families, I said, this is the toughest part. It's not the initial event. It's the wait. And, you know, is he going to wake up? Is he going to recover? There's our visit with Dr. Kevin Lindsman of Houston Methodist Cardiologist. He works with the Texans and other Houston area sports teams. And if you missed some of that, it'll be on the Texans app soon enough. Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, will check in with him soon enough. John Harris, D.P. Sidhu, Drew Doherty. It's all coming up here, Texans Radio. All right, it's not the players' show. I know the imaging says so audio-wise, but we preempted that tonight because of what's going on with DeMar Hamlin. And its effect on the entire league, of course, nothing more important than the health of that young man right now. Obviously, a big effect on the entire National Football League, including the Indianapolis Colts, the Texans scheduled opponent for Sunday at noon. And here's Matt Taylor, voice of the Colts, and obviously big impact on them, big impact on everybody involved in the NFL, like I said. No, there's no question. I mean, the Colts today were supposed to have media availability with uh, some of their coordinators and assistant coaches and um you know they they canceled that in, in solidarity solidarity with uh the buffalo bills um as you know demar hamlin now is certainly in the forefront of all of our minds and you know i was like a lot of people last night and watching the game as a spectator and i didn't have it on to begin the game and and turned it on actually about i would guess maybe 10 minutes after that play occurred and you know i was expecting to see you know first downs and passes and tackles instead I'm seeing you know players on knees and an ambulance on the field and just was was shocked and uh, had never really seen anything like that and you know so now it's all about um, you know as I think the football community coming together and trying to put what's important at the forefront and that's the well-being of a, of a young football player and I mean we're not talking about ACL tears or shoulder injuries and rehab and surgery and things like that. I mean we're talking about life and death here. And um I think the NFL has handled it well. I thought ESPN last night from a broadcast standpoint handled it well and um I think you know these players are are trying to compartmentalize, you know, being there for a player, a brother, um you know and, and just a great human being and um it's going to be hard for the Bills and Bengals, and I think all of us, um, to, to go back to football when you have such a um, huge, uh, important thing occurring, again, when it's when it's life and death. I mean, football is a game, but this is so much bigger than all of that. Yeah, and they won't make up that game. We'll see how it affects everything moving forward. It, it does seem strange, I think, that 
every day things could change. Any minute things could change, and we're hoping that the sun comes out and things change for the much better for DeMar Hamlin. But it really seems strange to get ready for the games for everybody not directly involved with the game on Monday night. You know what I'm saying? With Texans and Colts scheduled to meet this weekend, it feels a little strange to get hyped up for the game for the season finale with everything going on with this. No, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, you almost feel insensitive, um, you know, talking about football because, right, I mean, the, the, you know, Houston and Indianapolis, these are not, you know, markets that were directly impacted by, you know, the, the ordeal last night. And so it is, you know, the NFL has already come out and said that there will be no changes to the NFL schedule in week 18. Um, it's, I think it's the right thing to do to not play that game, but to sit here and talk about playoff ramifications and, you know, things that need to happen in the off season for the Colts. I mean, it's, it's tough to sort of go there this, soon after the seriousness of last night. So, you know, we're kind of treading water lightly around here, if you will. I know that's a bad metaphor, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I I think last night's uh, occurrence was so serious that you do kind of have to put things into perspective and put the, you know, upcoming off season um, for the Colts and Texans at bay for a couple of days before we figure out, you know, the well-being of DeMar Hamlin. There's our visit with Colts voice Matt Taylor, and we will have a more extended visit with him a little bit later on in the week. Now let's bring aboard John Harris. And, Johnny, we've seen so many serious medical situations in this league, but this is different. The looks on the faces of the coaches, the quarterbacks, we've talked about it. You knew right away there was something very alarming about this. Uh, absolutely. The, the only thing that I really – you know, I saw somebody tweet about the Hank Gather situation, and that's yeah. when I went, oh, man. Now, that was that was March of 1990. And Nick brought it up, too. Yeah, and it's it's just incredible to think about um, because I just remember the images, and I remember the 30 for 30 that was done on that. And, in you know, they did that, that documentary probably 20 years after it happened. And in doing that documentary, they told the stories of what Hank had been going through mm-hmm. and how Hank had felt sluggish with the medicine he was taking to, to help him with the with the issue he was having, so he stopped taking the medicine. But I remember the, the images of seeing him collapse on the field. That is so jarring. Mm-hmm. And anybody that says, oh, he passed out. No, like a guy collapsed. Yeah. Um, that was just jarring because that was the first you know, when somebody said that on Twitter, I, was, I went right back there. And I remember, and this is the difference. And hopefully it'll be, it'll mean the difference in life and death. Because in 1990, Loyola Marymount was not, was not ready and capable to handle a situation as such. And right. the medical professionals were not on site. And I just remember they were carrying Hank out of the gym. And it was so sad. And you saw last night, the medical professionals were on the field immediately. And they were working on him immediately from both sides, the best you could have. And the University of Cincinnati Medical Center is two miles away. And all of that, hopefully, is going to work to save DeMar Hamlin's life. And, and, and hopefully, that's going to be the case. And he can live a long, fruitful life. But it was... You know, it was interesting because I was watching the game, but I wasn't. So when they went mm-hmm. to a break, I wasn't really paying attention. So when they showed the replay again, when I heard that he was down, the first thing you think of, 
Well, that's a paralysis situation when somebody is down like that. that right. That's the first thing you think about. At the very least. And then you see it and you're like, wait a second. That's not a paralysis situation. And you see he took a hit right to the heart. And that's that's the other one other part of this. Our thoughts got to T. Higgins because that's the kind of thing where mm-hmm. T. Higgins was playing football. Yeah. And he lowered his shoulder as he's taught to do, as he's done, just instinctively has done. And he hit DeMar Hamlin in just the wrong spot. And I, and I just I feel for him. He tweeted late last night and, you know, it was just it was a tough scene. I know people were tweeting pictures of he and his he and T. Higgins' mom in the hallway. It's just hard to put into you know, you want to make it right. You keep refreshing Twitter to see, okay, is there an update? Is there an update? Is he doing well? Yeah. And we've gotten, you know, a few updates along the way, but they did restart his heart on the field. They did get him in ICU last night. He is in critical condition. And for us, there's really not a lot we can do other than offer our sympathy and, and our thoughts and prayers. Um, and, you know, hopefully that they come from all over the world and they seem like they have. I think what's in, what's just incredible is somebody at some point early in the evening after this had happened had posted the fact that DeMar was leading a toy drive. Yeah. And that you could donate. It was a GoFundMe that you could donate. The goal was $2,500. And now it's in the millions. And now it's in the 4 and $5 million range. That's incredible. And it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, that that's... That's just incredible, and hopefully that money is going to go to the right, um, you know, the right situation. But, you know, it just it just shows that having the right medical professionals in the right spot. I mean, what what if they can't get there? What if you know they're for whatever reason, I know staff is down. I don't know, but it you know, talking to Nick, that was the one thing that yeah, we're from that standpoint, we're ready to go. All right, Johnny, I know you have a lot more to say on the subject, and we're going to get into that next when Texans All Access officially begins, and we'll also bring aboard Drew Doherty and D.P. Sidhu to discuss it. This is a unique show. This has been the Texans Players Show. We don't normally do it like this, obviously, but these are different times with what happened on Monday Night Football with DeMar Hamlin. So let's get into some of the nuances of what is going on next, and The league schedule is still in play for Week 18. The game against the Bengals and the Bills, or the game featuring the Bengals and the Bills, is not scheduled to be made up or continued or anything like that. And I don't know how that's going to affect things, but obviously that is not the main priority right now as we continue to talk about this, the DeMar Hamlin help situation. Thanks for listening to this revamped Texans player show, Texans All Access, coming your way next. It's Texans Radio.